Father, we sing of your goodness and your power because you are a great and awesome God. and There is none like you. There, there are no gods that match your greatness, your power, your love, your, um, your eternity. You, you are uh, uncreated and above all the universe and all of the gods of the nations are idols. They are but dust on a scale and and Lord, you are the eternal God whom we love and serve. And, and Lord, we want to see you, you and your character uh, more clearly this evening. And we want to be able to respond with praise and confidence, trust in you because of your greatness. So help us to see it in, in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 29 is the focus of our attention this evening, Psalm 29. I'm good. Psalm 29. There is an updated schedule for our study in the Psalms on the back table. So if you weren't here last week and you didn't get one, you can grab one of those. I I made um, some changes with regard to the dates there. So tonight we're in Psalm 29. And this psalm was written by David, as you see there in the superscription, and it's a psalm of praise. And there are 29 of these kinds of psalms in the book of the Psalms. Um, And this psalm focuses on, as you can imagine, a praise psalm would focus on praise. It's focusing on praising God for His character and or His works. And in this psalm, we praise the powerful and glorious God and find strength in Him when we are in need. Remember last week we saw in Psalm 28 that David prayed that God not be silent in his time of trouble. God, don't be silent. Here in Psalm 29, God is far from silent. He's going to speak uh, through the storms effectively. And I'm not sure how you think of storms, but I think in our day, storms are not nearly as frightening as they were in the ancient Near East if you put yourself in somebody's shoes from that time. Two reasons for that is, first, we have better houses than they did, right? Their, their houses were more temporary. And so when we can go inside of a house and we're kind of like the, the pig, the three little pigs, you know, in the brick house, that no matter what kind of, uh, of thrust of wind from the mouth of the, the wolf there, they, they weren't fearful, right? Um, that's not a Bible story. That's just an illustration. Okay, but, but that's the way we are in our houses. When storms come, we have all these extra... Um, these extra cares and measures that have been uh, thought about by engineers and by city inspectors and stuff over the years. And so it's worked to make our houses stand up against some of the toughest of storms. I mean, even uh, if you think about it in in like earthquake um, uh, zones, you know, they, they have houses that actually can shift with the rocking of the earth. Or, you know, in hurricane zones, they have they have places where you can go where you can get inside the building and, and seek protection up to a certain level uh, of the water rising. So in our day, we, we have better houses than people did in the ancient Near East. And so storms were much more uh, fierce or more frightening to them. And I think also that we have better weather tracking technology than they had. But, but just take yourself out of our comfortable little uh, spot on the globe and in time and put yourself over into modern-day Africa or India, out in the sticks, in a mud hut, 
with a grass, you know, roof, how much more terrified are you of a storm? Or, or get out on the middle of the Sea of Galilee, just this tiny little lake, and and uh, and and uh, face the, this fierce storm. And I think we would be much more fearful of them. And so, in that sense, when you think about this psalm, think about it in those terms, not in terms of of how you know, kind of unconcerned we are about storms in general. So let me read Psalm 29 for us. Psalm 29. This is the Word of God. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve the strips and, and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So in this psalm, as we see God for his glory and power, we worship him and find strength in him. This psalm is a praise psalm, so it's going to, to call us as its readers to praise God or as its singers, if we're singing this psalm, but, but call us as its readers to praise God for something. And w- that's one of the questions that we need to answer. Why should we praise God? And I'm suggesting that we should praise God because of his glory and power. I think that's what David is, is trying to show us. So first, we need to... Praise the Lord, verses 1 through 2. We need to praise the Lord. The psalm begins with four verbal commands in verses 1 and 2. What are the verbal commands? Just one word, verbs, that serve as commands for what the, uh, the, uh, the person that he's calling or the people that he's calling to do this. What are the four verbs in verses 1 and 2? Ascribe. That's two. Ascribe and worship. What are the other two? Okay, good. So ascribe, 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 and worship. Those are the four verbs. So we need to understand what this word ascribe means, and then we need to see who is being called to do the ascribing, and then who the recipient of the ascribing is, and then the object. So first, what does ascribing mean? This word ascribe is translated in Psalm 60:13 as the as uh, give. It says there, give to us help. It's it's the psalmist is calling out to God and saying, give to us help against our adversary. Or in other words, ascribe to us help against our adversary. That's the same word that's used in the the, uh, Hebrew. And and the idea here in this psalm is not that that, that we're giving to God something uh, other than the credit that he deserves. And so to ascribe means to give to God the credit that he deserves. Notice the, the call to ascribe. In other words, who, who is doing the ascribing? Notice at the, uh, the middle of verse 1, ascribe to the Lord. Who is David talking to? 
O sons of the mighty, or as other translations put it, ascribe to the Lord heavenly beings. And I think that's a completely appropriate translation. This uh, literally is sons of El. El is just short for Elohim, which is another name for God. Okay, Or actually, it's a, it's a plural word, so it actually is used in other places for gods. So it could be son of, the God, son of God, sons of God, or sons of the gods. And in Canaanite culture, that would be talking about the pagan deities. They would use this exact Hebrew phrase. They would say, uh, sons of the gods, the pagan deities. It also could be referring to the sons of God, like in Job 2.1, where it's talking about the angels. But I think if, if David wanted to use, if he wanted to just talk about angels here, if he's just saying, ascribe to the Lord, O angels, if he wanted to do that, he could have used another word. He could have used the Hebrew word malachim. But instead, which just means messenger or angel, but instead he uses this phrase, sons of God, or sons of the gods. And apparently, this is because I think he wanted to include more than just the holy angels, but that he wanted to include these false gods who are apparently over the natural world. That is, that, that they would see that, that these storms that we're going to talk about here in verses 3 through 9 are actually controlled by the pagan gods. And so what he's doing is saying, you pagan gods and you angels, that would include this phrase could include both of those, all of you heavenly beings, whether holy or demonic, all of you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. So the next question is, to whom should we um, give something? Who sh- to whom should we ascribe something? And I just answered it here in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord. So that's the recipient of the ascribing. And then the object is, what, what is it that, we're, that these heavenly beings are supposed to ascribe to Him? And that's found in verse 1 as well. It is in verse 1, glory and strength. In verse 2, the glory due to His name. And then also, um, oh, that's it, then worship the Lord. So, so basically those two things, glory and strength and glory due to His name. Now, it's true that, that David is calling, I think, all the heavenly beings, both good and evil, all the heavenly beings, to see what God, who God is, what He's done, and then to ascribe glory to Him. But I think by implication, the fact that we're listening in on what David's saying to the heavenly beings suggests that we also should be included in this ascribing. That, that He is, yes, directly He's talking to them, but I think by implication we, along with those angels and demons, ought to acknowledge God for who He is, the glory and the strength that He has. So, so we need to give God glory and strength. We need to ascribe God glory and strength that's due to His name. What does this mean? I mean, have you ever thought about that? How can we give God glory? How can we add glory to God? Let me say it that way. How can we add glory to God? And the fact is that we can't add glory to God in the sense that, that, you know, He's got like a glory cup and we kind of just fill it up with more glory. We can't do that because think about it, what, what life would be like if we weren't here or if we weren't ascribing to God the glory that was due to Him. Would God be any less glorious? You see, 
long before creation, God was completely glorious. Okay, if you want to think about it like a cup, right? It was full and overflowing. God is completely glorious. He has been eternally. We don't add anything to His glory. And so in that sense, what is the psalmist calling us to do? What is David trying to get us to do if we can't make God more glorious? Well, I think it's maybe similar to, to our view of the sun, right? We, we don't add heat or light to the sun. We simply acknowledge the heat and light that comes from the sun. And then I think properly we use it for what it was intended to be used for. We use the sun for what it was meant to, to, to be used for. And I think the same thing is true about God. We don't add more light or heat to the sun. We don't add more glory to God. We don't make Him more glorious. But instead, we acknowledge His glory and we praise Him for His glory and we respond to His glory as He intends. That's what it means to ascribe glory to His name. So when we're praising God, we're doing something that's already due His name. We're giving something to Him or we're... We're acknowledging something that, that is already true. See, God was, was glorious before we acknowledged it, right? When, when we were opposed to God, when we were His enemies, God was still glorious. But what God is doing is He's bringing us into a position where we start to see Him. We start to look and see the great benefits of the light, so to speak, of the glory of God. And as we do, we acknowledge it. God, what great light and heat You produce spiritually for us. You are the source of all that is good. And so that's what it means to ascribe. It doesn't mean to give in the sense that we add to His glory, but, but it is to acknowledge His glory and praise Him for it. We, we are naturally good at ascribing glory and strength to our own name, aren't we? That is, we, we want to make sure that the credit is always being given to us. And, and, and yet what God is calling us to do, what what God is calling us to do through David is to ascribe glory and strength not to our own name, but to your name, O Lord, belongs all the glory. And I think that acknowledgement can be done verbally. You know, when we speak to other people, it can be done through prayer when we speak to God. God, you are worthy of all my praise. Or it can be done like we just did in song. That, that we sing of the goodness of you, O Lord. We have seen it in the earth. We have seen it in your creation. And, and you deserve praise for, for that. So, the first three verbs are ascribe. Ascribe glory and strength. Ascribe glory due to your name. And do it to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. The, the, the fourth verb is the, is the different one here. It's the second kind of verb. And it is worship. We need to worship the Lord. And I think this fourth command really builds on the first three, which all go together, of course, that, that we, along with the heavenly creatures, should, should worship the Lord in holy array. We should worship the Lord in holy array. It's not that the heavenly creatures should array themselves in clothing. That's maybe what we get when we look at that last phrase in verse 2. Worship the Lord, so put on your holy array before you worship the Lord. That could be the case because you think about the priests couldn't just walk in in their street clothes, right, into the temple. They had to come in in the, in the appointed... Uh, uh, clothing that God demanded, right? They had to have a certain kind of clothing that He had demanded. Otherwise, they would be defiling the temple, defiling God, defiling themselves, or defiling uh, their meeting with God. So it could be that, but I think this is not talking about 
that the heavenly creatures, hey, put on your holy clothing before you come to see God. Instead, I think this is talking about God. This is describing God. What, what is God clothed in? And, and the point is that God is clothed in holiness. And this is why we worship Him. We worship Him because this is His fundamental attribute. Right? When the, when the, when the angels bow down in Isaiah 6, the first thing that comes to their lips is not love or justice or mercy. Those are all attributes of God. But the first thing that comes to their lips is what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? And so God is clothed in holiness. His holiness is what, what drives, I think, all of His other attributes. And our worship of the Lord and that really the heavenly beings worship of the Lord flows out of our understanding of this holiness. Flows out of our understanding of His great power. And God's power is displayed in two ways primarily in this text. First, in the thunderstorm, verses 3-9, through nine, and then second, in helping us. So first, the strength of the storm comes from the Lord. In other words, when we see a storm the most powerful of storms, we need to recognize that God is behind it. God is the one who's behind that storm. In fact, the way that the Scripture speaks of it is that that it is the glory of God that thunders. It's not just some inanimate object that's up there and, you know, it thundered today. No, it's God that thunders. You see that in verse 4? I'm sorry, verse 3, the middle of the verse, the the glory of God thunders. So, So what we need to see is that the strength of the storm is not just some, you know, uh, abstract object out there that just kind of, it just happens. It's God kind of just set the world in motion and storms happen, you know? No, it's God who's behind the storm. And that's what the psalmist wants us to know and worship God for. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, in the ancient Near East, the Canaanites attribute, attributed the power of the storms to false gods. Particularly, they thought that, that Baal was in charge of the storms. So if they needed rain for their crops, do you know what they did? They went to the temple, the pagan temple, and they offered sacrifices to Baal, and they prayed to Baal and asked for rain. And guess what happened when rain came? They praised the small small g, God of Baal. Right? They praised Him because, hey, you sent the rain. You're the one who who gives... uh, who gives force and, and who, who uh, provides nourishment to us. And so in that sense, what did they do? They ascribed glory and strength to a God who is false, who's not responsible for the storm. And so what David wants us to see is that the voice of the Lord is the one who creates this storm. Baal has nothing to do with the rain or the power and the thunderstorm. It's all... God. In verse 3, we see that the voice of the Lord is behind the power of the thunderstorm. This, this storm starts out in the waters, and this, these waters are probably referring to the Mediterranean Sea. What we're going to see throughout this passage is that it starts out, actually, yeah, over here, okay, in the, in the, in the west, in the Mediterranean Sea. It comes up into Lebanon, which is kind of northern, northern part of Israel, and then it comes down into um, to to uh, Mount Hermon, I think it is, and Dan. Yes, Mount Hermon. 
and then it's going to come all the way down into the southern region of Israel. And the point is, is that God is the one who's directing the storm all the way through there. God is the one who's behind the storm. The voice of the Lord is behind the power of the thunderstorm. The voice of the Lord, by the way, if you didn't, didn't notice, that's kind of the key phrase in these seven verses, the voice of the Lord. It's powerful and majestic in verse 4. Verse 5, it breaks the cedars of Lebanon. For, for a Hebrew person, this would have been the strongest or the most powerful, the, uh, the, 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 the largest forest that they knew of was the forest of Lebanon. And yet God is the one who has the power with his storm to break those trees like toothpicks because the Lord is behind that storm. In verses 6 and 8, he makes the ground shake. Did you notice that here in the text? He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. So if you think about Lebanon, and, and it's just kind of bouncing, rumbling from the, the quake of the storm. That's how powerful it is. This um, Syrian that's mentioned here in verse 6 is what I'm talking about with regard to Mount Hermon. It's on the northern part of Dan. So if you were to go to your map in the back of your Bible, you'd see Mount Hermon up there. And this is one of the largest, in fact, probably the greatest mountain range in the Israelite area. So they would have known it well, but they also would have been had some sort of respect for it in that sense. And so when they see this shake, when they see the fact that this storm has power even over such a great mountain range, it shows... Um, the power of that storm, but, but when they recognize that that storm comes from God, they see the power of God. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord creates lightning. I think that's what it means here with hues out flame, up flames of fire. Uh, if you look in the margin of your Bible, you see a note there in the New American Standard. Verse 9, causes premature birth. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. And I think the idea is to calve early. Like the, the pregnant... Um, deer is not ready, but, but when the storm comes, it, it kind of brings it, up, brings it upon her. And then the last part of verse 9, we see the summary. The summary here that the, these thunderstorms are powerful. They strip the forest bare. And here's the response. That all of those who are in God's temple say, Glory. Here's David. He's saying, listen, Baal is not responsible for these thunderstorms. God is responsible. It's the voice of the Lord that brings the lightning. It's the voice of the Lord that brings the great crashes of thunder. It's the voice of the Lord that makes the ground to rumble. It's the voice of the Lord that cuts down the trees. It causes the forest to go bare. God is responsible and deserves credit. That's to whom we should ascribe glory for these thunderstorms, not Baal. And that's why the response is, when we recognize that, glory. Glory to you, God. And, and what I think David's saying is, you false gods, you must acknowledge this as well. And everyone who is in, in his temple here, I think is referring to God's heavenly temple, since it's talking about the heavenly beings in verse 1, that, that it's talking about God's heavenly temple. And so all of you in the heavenly host, angel and demon, Look at these thunderstorms and recognize that they come from God and cry out to Him. Ascribe to Him the glory and the strength that's due to His name. So, this great strength comes from the Lord and for that we should, verses 1 and 2, ascribe glory and strength to Him and we should worship Him. 
But notice in verses 10 and 11 that, that, that the strength that we receive from God also comes from the Lord. So here he's going to kind of make a transition here from the thunderstorm to the historic flood that took place. God, the Lord sat as king at the flood. So you notice that's in the past tense, so it's talking about something that's happened in the past, and I think it's talking about the universal flood during the time of Noah. That, that the flood didn't just kind of happen. It was God sitting up there on His throne and sending the water, sending the rains from the heaven and the waters from the deep and causing the earth to fill up. God was sitting as king on the throne when that happened. And so He, yes, displays His power in the great thunderstorms, but He also displays His power, most notably, in one of the greatest acts in human history by God, and that was the flood. And then he not only is king, he was, not only was king at the flood, but notice he's king forever. He sits as king. This is talking about his universal reign over all things, that every single raindrop, every single thunderstorm, every single ash, uh, uh, meteorological event that takes place is controlled by the hand of the Almighty God. And so what should we learn from this? Verses 1 and 2, certainly we should ascribe glory to his name. But in verse 11, we should learn something about, we should take what we know about God's thunderstorms and the power that we see in that and apply that to our own lives. If the voice of the Lord is that strong that He could command these thunderstorms to accomplish what He wants, to, to break the trees, to cause the ground to, tr- to, to rumble, to make the deers to calve, to just bring terror all over the place because of the power of these great storms, then should not we recognize the great strength that we have at our disposal? Look at verse 11. The Lord will give strength to His people. Here's how it connects. Because okay? David's not saying, here. look at all these things about thunderstorms, and then, oh yeah, let me say one other thing about God, how He gives strength to His people. No, he's saying, see the strength in the thunderstorms? God's behind that. And now, apply that to us. The Lord gives strength to His people. He will bless His people with peace. And this is what we should learn when we see these great acts of God. You know, God was behind that storm. God was behind that, that, um, that great tragic event that came on Indonesia. What was it, 11 years ago? Because of God's great power, we should find strength in Him and recognize that that same power that He uses to guide the storm and to cause the storm is the same power that is available to us. And if we want that power, if we want to use His power for His purposes according to His means, then then we should turn in praise and worship to Him. That's the, the main thing. There is a sense in this psalm where it's calling us to rely on God for His strength. That, that comes up at the very end. But the, the majority of the text is focused on our praise to the Lord. This is the main thing that we should get out, out of this text tonight. That God is the King of the thunderstorms. God is the King of the flood. God is King over all, and He deserves our praise. So, four principles to consider here tonight. Number one. The great power of God is expressed in the, in the thunderstorm. 
the great power of God is expressed in the thunderstorm. I wonder what weather reports will be like in the Millennial Kingdom. You know, if you follow the weather locally or nationally, one thing that you're going to find absent in those reports is any mention of God. Right? Occasionally, the, the reporter will say something about Mother Nature. They'll give credit to Mother Nature. That's, I think that's kind of similar to what the Canaanites would do with Baal, right? Now, people might not pray to Mother Nature, but, but the point is, is that's how, who the, the meteorologists tend to give credit to. But no one ever says, you know, the glory of God thundered today. Or that this hurricane has such great strength because God is the one who's behind this hurricane. Or when an area that has been experiencing drought finally receives rain, no one says on the Weather Channel, God mercifully sent rain to this parched land. Instead, they focus on all these physical attributes of the storm and, and kind of all the science behind the storms and how they develop and how they move and how they dissipate and all that. And David is teaching us here that, hey, we, we need to look at this with a biblical worldview. All the storms and all the, the um, meteorological events that happen in our lifetime, we need to look at, at them with a biblical worldview, recognizing that God is behind them all. God is the God of all the storms. He's the one who has the power to shake the earth, to cause us small humans to tremble. Number two, the great power of God is at your disposal. Again, this is what we saw in verse 11. What is the most powerful force of nature you have ever witnessed? What, what is the most powerful force of nature that you've ever experienced in your lifetime? Maybe for you it was a thunderstorm or in our area, you know, tornadoes. For me it was a waterfall. Standing at the base of the Iguazu Falls in Brazil and watching and hearing the sheer force of that water coming down with reckless power and crash hard on the rocks below. And all I could stay, say was stand, stand back and say, wow, what a great God we serve to be able to, to, to have the power over this water. I'm sure for some people around the world, the, the greatest, maybe the most powerful force of nature that they've witnessed is maybe an earthquake that they experienced or a tsunami. And I'm sure, for Noah, obviously, for Noah and his family, it was the great flood. But, but all that power that is displayed in those storms and those great events is at your disposal. That the same power that causes those storms is, is caused by a God who has your ear. Okay, or maybe it's the other way around. Okay, you have his ear. You can talk to him. And you can ask him for, for strength. So is there a trial that seems insurmountable? Are you drowning in the tragedy of your circumstances and feel like there's no way I can get out of this? Do you realize who you have at your disposal? You have the God who has power over all the universe. Number three, the, the great power of God is expressed preeminently at the resurrection. So we might marvel at some of these great forces of nature and say, wow, that's some great and mighty power that God shows. But I think the greatest display of God's power was at the resurrection. 
where we had these two great enemies and two great weapons that Satan has used since the history of fallen mankind, which are sin and death. And you know, sin and death have been wreaking havoc on mankind ever since Genesis 3, haven't they? And we can't seem to get out from underneath its power. And yet, at the resurrection, both of those were defeated, weren't they? Both sin and death were defeated. Death, where is your sting? I'm not afraid of you anymore. Because Christ has conquered death through the resurrection. And it will only be a matter of time before sin and death are forever removed from the toolbox of Satan, where Satan will no longer be able to use those to destroy people like he does now. And Satan himself will be destroyed, no longer to torment the people of God. God's great glory and His great power was seen at the resurrection, proving that He has power over sin and death and that He can reverse this great curse that came upon the world as a result of Adam's sin. And one day, this great power will be displayed again when Christ comes in power and glory. He will come to this earth and He will destroy all those who oppose Him and He will reign on this earth. And we'll see who the real King of the universe is. Finally, the great power of God demands our ongoing praise. Okay, so this is what ought to come out of our hearts tonight. This is what ought to well up within us as a result of what we've seen. We ought to respond with with praise and worship. Those who look at the works of the Lord have to follow what David is saying, I think, in acknowledging that God is matchless in His power. That, That there is no one that matches the great power and glory of God. And so we simply say that to God. That's how we ascribe glory to His name. We say to God what He said to us about Himself and His power. Or as as my theology professor used to put it, we think God's thoughts after Him. Right? We don't come up with brand new things about, let's see, how should I talk about God? We go to the Scriptures and think His thoughts after Him. And that's how we praise God. We, we say to Him what's true about Him because we know it's true because of, it's in the Scriptures. He's told it to us. And when we acknowledge God in this way, it helps us during our times of temptation. You know, when we're so tempted that, you know, it seems like the power of Satan and the gods of this world are too strong for my God. This is when we need to be reminded that that it's the Lord that thunders in the storm. It's the Lord that causes the sky to flash with brilliant light. It's the Lord that splits the oak and cedar trees with one strike of His lightning. It's the Lord who causes the ground to shake. And Satan cannot win, can he? And neither can any of his minions. They cannot have the final victory because our God is a mighty God. And so, I say to you what David said to these heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, O children of God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. And worship the Lord who is clothed in holiness. Because everyone in His temple is crying out. When they see His great works... Glory. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, 
Now to His temple draw near and join me in glad adoration. Our God is worthy of praise because He is mighty in power and He is a glorious God and and, uh, we must praise and worship Him. Any questions or comments? Bob? Um, it's a good question. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Psalm thirty-seven, eleven. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That's probably the first part of the verse. The Hebrew. Yeah. I mean, the opposite of peace is hostility or war. So, um, you know, I... In the New Testament, when they use the word peace, the ultimate peace comes when Christ comes to reign on the earth. But there is a sense in which we can have kind of a, a settled confidence in in the storms of life, so to speak. Um, I'm thinking of, um, I can't think of the passage, but maybe it's First Peter. It says that the peace of God that passes all understanding will, will, um, will rule in your hearts in Christ Jesus. Uh, something like that. Sorry about that. Um, right. Not as the world gives. Right. So, so there is a settled confidence that a person can have despite the storms that are going. So we would tend to, just by our very human nature and, and, and sin nature too, is when when troubles come, we tend to fight against them and and um, and. Uh, and have this consternation, this this battle that's going on. Um, not that Christians never have that. I think Christ even had some some conflict in his soul over you know these temptations that he was facing and things like that. But but there is a confidence that that he knows that what he's doing is right because he's following the words of God. And so I think in that sense, um, peace to. to Israel here would would have to be that that they could could have some kind of settled confidence. Now they may, you know, th- this may have some undertones of of the fact that that you know um, of Abraham the Abrahamic blessing there that that through you Israel all the nations of the earth will be blessed and I will bless those who bless you and curse you, those who curse you and so there's a sense in which you're not going to have to worry about oppression and, and that kind of thing. And so there might be a long-term promise here um, that's, that's implicit here. But, but I would say just on a surface level that it has to do with, with a, a recognition that God is in control and that no matter what happens throughout life that I can, I can be confident that God is on my side. So that's a good question, though. I... I I didn't give much thought to that in my 
studying that. Let me see if I have any other notes on that. Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that they're never going to have to have experience any thunderstorms themselves. Okay, They're never going to have to experience any enemies on the earth. I know it doesn't mean that. So, so the only thing that I could... I, I think the only two options are, one, a long-term, full and final peace, which will happen when Christ comes to reign, which doesn't seem to be talking that um, apocalyptically, I guess. So I... That's why I would say, based on this con- context, it would it probably re- be referring to just this settled confidence that hey, God is not opposing me, but He's actually on my side, and I I can tap into the strength that He has rather than have to fight against His strength. You know, the strength that's behind these thunderstorms is not coming down and and trying to destroy me. It's actually working for me. So in that sense, I have peace. You know, Romans five one. For the New Testament believer, um, you know, we, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so that's something that we can currently have, and I think um, they would have had been able to experience a similar kind of peace. It wouldn't have been through um, knowing the person of Christ himself because he wasn't revealed to them yet, but, but certainly knowing that, that confidence that God was on their side and that they were trusting in that promised Redeemer. Any follow-ups on that? Or Yes.